All right. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We were in the New Testament uh, this morning. We are in the Old Testament this afternoon, and we are going to look uh, at a, uh, a segment in the prophet Elijah's life that reminds us that our, our nourishment and our care ultimately comes not from any human instrumentality, but from uh, the Lord himself. Um, God oftentimes intervened in the life of Elijah, and we see that again here. And this is all in connection with our ongoing catechetical series as we look at uh, question answers 75, 76, and 77. Now, if you uh, uh, normally come to our afternoon worship services, you'll know a couple of things. Uh, normally, I just don't preach on what's called in the language that many of us are familiar with, a Lord's Day, which oftentimes consists of a number of questions and answers, usually just kind of take one at a time, one question and answer, just kind of, kind of really unpack it and bleed it out. But we're going to do something different. What we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, question and answer 75, 76, and 77 as we focus on the importance of the Lord's Supper, particularly the Lord's Supper as what um, theologians of the past called a means of grace. Now, what does that really mean, and how is that a benefit to us? That's what we're going to be taking a look at um, this afternoon. So what I want to do is um, I want to draw your attention to 1 Kings chapter uh, 19. I want to read verses um, 1 through 8, and then we're going to complement that with uh, the readings of 75 through 77 of the catechetical document. And uh, because of the length of these questions and answers, instead of me just asking the question and then all of us together reciting the answer, um, I'll just read the, both the question and answer. This is something a little bit different here um, this afternoon. So, all right, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 through 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise. Get up and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went on in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So we're going to end our reading there, and I want to draw your attention now. If we can uh, put that up there. Uh, okay, question and answer is 75, 76, and 77. So let's draw our attention to these, these words, and there's uh, quite a bit of material here. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts. And the answer is, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, 
As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And the second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his blood? First, it means to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and the death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, it means to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, Yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. And then, question after 77. Where has Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? The answer is in the institution of the Lord's Supper where we read the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and then this promise is repeated by Paul where he says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Um, I want to draw your attention to just uh, five basic takeaways from these question and answers, and there's a few more other things, but we're going to cover that. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at uh, a three-part series on the Lord's Supper. We had what, a two or three part series on the sacrament of baptism. The last time we met, we looked at what we call covenant baptism, what is normally known as infant or child baptism, and why do we actually do that. Now we're going to be entering into a rationale or the meaning of and a rationale for the celebration of uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, before I explain five things here, I want to say this. You know, if you, if you grow up in the church, you know that the Lord's Supper is something that you do upon occasion, and churches have uh, different practices with the frequency of the Lord's Supper. So, um, as I've said to you before, um, having come to the United Reformed Churches, we have a number of different practices. So, some churches practice weekly communion. Some practice um, what we had uh, in the church I served before in Phoenix, monthly communion. Others have it quarterly. Um, other churches have it like... Um, you know, on a regular basis, every two months or whatever. The, the Bible doesn't clearly stipulate, okay, exactly how many times you should do it. But the fact of the matter is, all true genuine churches do it, right? Um, all practice the, the uh, and, and administer the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, you know, we, got, we have to remember this. Um, sometimes we look at teachings that are very, uh, how should I put it, familiar to us at least the very basics of it. And the point of catechetical teaching is to get into more of the specifics of it. But a lot of us uh, grew up with the practice 
however frequently, of the Lord's Supper. And if you've been here to Pathway, you know that we have a simple table here and, and we have the elements of bread and wine and people come forward and so forth. But every once in a while, we have to remember this. Uh, lest we be, become too familiar with what we do, sometimes we have to look at things like baptism or the Lord's Supper with new eyes. And that's the eyes of those who did not grow up in the Christian faith or maybe who would come to Pathway for the first time. And when they see this table set up, they're, they're wondering, what in the world is that? And then they see these people coming forward, and they go, what are they, what are they doing? It's all just kind of weird. And, and, the, and the pastor can explain, basically, and the form that we read basically explains what the Lord's Supper is all about. But if you didn't grow up with it, it's all, it's all just kind of strange, and there's also a sense of something special uh, going on. And um, the, the reason I bring that out is because when you, when you examine the history of the early church, when people would come to the Lord's Supper, um, or at least when they would, let me change that, when they would hear about Christians practicing the Lord's Supper, there were, there were a lot of strange ideas out there, especially during the time of the early church in the Roman Empire, where they thought that the church is a very strange place. There's incest going on because these, these people who meet together call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only is there incest going on, but there's also cannibalism going on because they proclaim that they actually eat the crucified body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, you know. Now, if you grow up in the Christian church, you say, well, that's ridiculous. Let me explain what we're actually doing. But every once in a while, we have to realize just what other people are thinking or what they may be thinking and that we need to guard a proper knowledge of the Lord's Supper so that we can actually share with others actually what we are doing, but also so that we may gain a deeper understanding of the benefits of the Lord's Supper for, for us, okay? So that, that is, is a way of a little bit of kind of a, something for us to, to think about upon occasion. Now, there is a lot packed in um, questions uh, 75, 76, and 77. So what I want to do is for the sake of time, and we're going to fill this out over the next couple of weeks. So if I don't explain everything from these questions and answers, just bear with it, me, because, because we'll get it a little bit later on. Here's five basic things to remember about what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. First of all, the Lord's Supper is, and I know it's going to be a basic teaching for a lot of us, but some of us may not be aware of this. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments that Christ has ordained, that Christ has instituted, that he has put in place, right? So we have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. And as I said, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper um, over the next number of weeks. So it's one of two sacraments. We do not have seven sacraments like the Roman Catholic Church. But when we take a look at the New Testament and particularly the teaching of Christ and the ministry of Christ, we see very clearly Christ has just instituted two, not seven, two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Secondly, when it comes to baptism, Lord's Supper, we have to realize that these are sacraments, particularly Lord's Supper that we're considering here tonight. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that is not just instituted by Christ, but is commanded by Christ. Okay, so the, the reason why I say that is because we have to understand that the, the celebration of baptism, the observance of it, and the observance of the Lord's Supper is, is not something that is, that's optional for us. Neither is it a human convention where we say, well, you know what, um, human beings just over time in the church thought it would be a wonderful way to remember what Jesus Christ has done for them by celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's not how it works. Jesus himself has instituted it, he's ordained it, he put it into place, and he expects us on a regular basis, however you want to interpret that word regularly, to celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper together. And he, he actually not only puts it in place, but he commands it. Remember his words in the institution. He says, do this. 
right? Do this in remembrance of me. So, so basically, one other quick thing is, you really, you, you, you can't be a true church without it. Any church that says, well, we preach the word, and we have fellowship, and, and we are a missional church and all this, but they don't celebrate the sacraments, stay away. It's not a true church, because Christ commands these, and they're for our benefit. So that's number two. Number, uh, number three, there are two elements that we find in the Lord's Supper. They are bread, and they are wine, or as we also serve along here, uh, grape juice, because Jesus talks about the fruit of the vine. So we say, well, we're going to keep with the fruit of the vine. That could be grape juice, or it could be wine. But however you want to look at that, we have bread, and we have the fruit of the vine. And both of them, very clearly, are symbols that Christ has given us. They're symbols that Christ has given us so that we might remember and take hold of what he has done for us on the cross and giving his body, which is represented by the bread, and giving his blood, which is represented by the wine, the grape juice, for the complete forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. That's number three. Fourthly, regarding the, the bread and the wine as elements, um, the, the Bible teaches us, and our catechetical standards make it very clear, that these two elements are, listen carefully, holy, visible signs and seals. Now, what I mean by that? When I say that these two elements are holy, that means that they're consecrated for use within the worship service of Christ. Okay? So the Lord's Supper is not something that we get up in the morning as a family and the dad says to the family, you know, I'm in the mood for celebrating the Lord's Supper. We need to draw near to the Lord as part of our devotional time together as a family. So let's just celebrate the Lord's Supper together. No. It's instituted by Christ for the church and for the worship of the church. It's to be holy and set apart by the Lord for consecrated use in the context of the ministry of the church. Secondly, the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper are visible. They're things that we can see. There's, there's only three elements that Christ has left us with that we can actually see that, that reveal the gospel to us in visible form. You know what they are? It's the water of baptism. You got the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. And, and, and why does Christ give us these visible things? <laughs> you know why? It's because we're weak. Because we're weak. So we can hear the word, but what the sacraments do, what the elements of bread and wine do, is they make the word very real to us and the promises of God very real to us. They are also the bread and wine signs and seals. So a sign is something that points beyond itself, and a seal is a guarantee or a confirmation, which raises the question, the bread and the wine, what are they actually signs and seals of? Well, they point to and they confirm the promise of God that for all those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they receive the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God on the basis of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's what both the bread and the wine point to. And then fifthly and finally, to make it very simple, when you think of the Lord's Supper, just think of these two things. The Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance, and it's a meal of spiritual nourishment. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, together we remember as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, yes, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of my sins. But also this, and I want you to listen very carefully to this. There's a lot of Christians who with us 
celebrate the Lord's Supper. But a lot of them have this understanding that the Lord's Supper is simply a meal of remembrance. It's a memorial meal. And they got half of it right. But the second half, they need to be instructed on. And the second half, we find really underscored during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And that is this. The Protestant Reformers said, listen, the Lord's Supper is not only a meal of remembrance, but it is also a meal of spiritual nourishment. Whereby, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as the people of God, the Lord feeds our souls, he nourishes our souls, and he refreshes our souls on this many times difficult journey of life. So my friends, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the next time you come, and you're a communicant member, and you see that table, may it be that if you're particularly low that day, or if you've had a difficult month and you're struggling, may your heart be lifted up where you go, you know what, I don't only get to hear the word, but I also get to engage in the sacrament. And as I eat of that bread and I drink of that wine, I remember that my Lord loves me. And he's going to give me what I need to keep moving forward in this sometimes difficult journey of life. And that is exactly what we see in the passage before us. I want to draw your attention to it now. I want to, if you could put the passage on there, um, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to follow this pass along. So it's a really, it's a really interesting story. So um, let me begin with this. This passage revolves around a great prophet. His name is Elijah. And the name Elijah means my God is Yahweh. So follow with me. Here's a little technical point, but you may find this a little bit interesting. The, the, the name Elijah is really divided into three different elements. So you have Eli or Eli and then Yah. El is short for Elohim in the Hebrew God. And when you have the E as a part of that, that's attached to El, Eli, or Eli. The I is a personal pronoun. It's my God. And then Yah is short for Yahweh. So my God is Yahweh. In other words, Elijah's name means, and it should, this is special for him, he's a prophet. Elijah's name means, yeah, my God is the Lord God, the true God. Not a false God, but he's a true God. Now, it's important for us to understand because the, 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 for the people of God to whom Elijah speaks the word of the Lord, their God was not Yahweh. Their God was not the Lord. But by the time that Elijah actually speaks to the people here in this historical context, the people of God were not the people of the Lord so much as they were the people of Baal, the God of fertility and weather. And so basically what the people of God did is they, they basically threw the wedding ring off their finger, threw it in the dust, they turned their back on God, and they said, we don't want you, we now embrace Baal, the God of fertility and weather. He's the one who is far good. Baal is sovereign, not the Lord God. And so what God did is he, he sent Elijah to his people to do precisely this, to, to preach judgment against them and a call to repentance and faith. And he also preached judgment against the prophets of Baal who promoted Baal worship among the people of God. So with that having been said, as we, as we come to the immediate context of our passage, what we find this is a very interesting story. I'm not going to go into the details of it. But we find Elijah, one man, facing off against 450 prophets of Baal. Now you think of the courage that that took. So he stands off against the, 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 the prophets of Baal. 
And like I said, I'm not going to get into the details of the story, but what we find is that not only does Elijah humiliate the prophets of Baal, but he orders the slaughtering of all 450 prophets because of what they were doing to God's people. And so all 450 prophets are absolutely slaughtered. Not one escapes. And when the queen of Israel at this time named Jezebel hears about this, she threatens Elijah with these very words. She says, Elijah, may the gods do to me, and even more so, if I do not make your life like one of theirs by tomorrow. In other words, may the gods do to me, not the true God, but the gods, may the gods do to me more so if I don't kill you first. And when Elijah hears this, he takes this seriously because he knows Jezebel. Who's Jezebel married to? Jezebel's married to the king of Israel, Ahab, but she's the one who really wears the pants in the family. And Jezebel did not grow up in a, what we call a covenant community, a believing community, but her father was the king of Tyre, who was a pagan king. And she grew up with Baal worship. And what she did, she came into Israel, married an Israelite king, and introduced Baal worship into the people of God. So you can see how dark her heart is. And so what she does is she threatens Elijah, and Elijah takes that threat very seriously. So what does he do as he move on in the story? He takes off. He flees. And where does he go? He goes from his present location to a place called Beersheba, which the text doesn't tell us, but if you do your research on this, it's 160 kilometers away. You know how far that is? That's like from Abbotsford all the way to about northern Seattle. <laughs> so it's a, it's a long haul. So what does that tell us? He takes this, it tells us that he takes the threat against his life very seriously. And once he gets to Beersheba, what does he do? The text tells us that he goes a day's journey into the desert. So what is that? Maybe another 15 to 20 kilometers. So what that tells us is he's trying to get away because he's fearing for his very life. He's trying to get away from Jezebel as far as possible. And once he goes into the desert, he finds a broom tree which is, which is a, a, a kind of a tree or a shrub that provides shade in the midst of the desert. Now, um, having been in Phoenix for 12 years, i got to tell you that shade means everything. If you grew up in this area, it doesn't mean so much. But when you grow up in a, a desert place like Phoenix, which has just had a horrible, horrible summer, and I still think in Fahrenheit, and I think it was... I don't know, yesterday was like 117 Fahrenheit. It's just, our daughter lives there, and it's just awful. But anyway, when you go to the store, if you go to the grocery store, you know what you look for? You look for these little trees in Phoenix that give you just enough shade to cover the front seat of your car, because that can mean the difference between 15 and 20 degrees difference. This is Elijah. So he looks for this bloom tree, and he, he gets underneath this broom tree, and what does he do? He falls asleep. But before he falls asleep, he prays. All right. Verses 4 and 5, we read this. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So I want to suggest to you at this point that um, Elijah is probably feeling the way that you and I would feel many times. Um, he's dejected, and he's lonely. Um, I think he's depressed. 
Maybe he's depressed. He just lies down. What do, you, what do you do when you're depressed? You're weak. You're tired. You want to go to sleep all the time. So he goes under the broom tree. But before he falls asleep, he prays, Lord, just, just take my life. There is a, there's a piece of music called an oratorio that's written by um, composer Felix Mendelssohn called the Elijah. And it's a beautiful piece of music. At one point, there is a choir that sings that represents the 450 prophets of Baal crying out to their God. And the choir sings with great gusto, Baal, we cry to thee. Baal, we cry to thee. And then as the piece, the oratorio moves on, eventually we find Elijah underneath the broom tree, and there's a single voice that pierces the air, and it sings this, It is enough, O Lord, now take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. A desire to live no longer. Now let me die, for my days are but vanity, emptiness. In other words, futility. So Elijah has come to the end of his rope, so to speak. And, you know, when you think about other characters in the Bible, let me mention just one. You think of... Can you hear me now? Is that good? All right. So, all right. So, I think I know where we're at. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with the sorrow of Elijah, but it's very reflective of, of Moses. He's not the only one. Take a look at this. Moses says this. Why have you dealt so poorly with me? And why have you laid the burden of all these people on me? And why have I not found favor in your sight? Did I conceive all these people? <laughs> Did I give birth to them? What? Where am I supposed to get meat for all of them? They cry out to me, give us meat to eat. I can't take care of all these people alone. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, kill me now if I've found favor in your sight. And then you think of Jesus on the night before he was crucified. You know what? Um, You never find Jesus saying to his father, you know, uh, kill me now. But you do find Jesus saying, um, Lord, maybe you can relieve me of this responsibility. Remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father said, if it is at all possible, let, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? It's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of death. It's a cup of pain. He knew it was coming. So, listen, I, I, I know we've, 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 we've covered a bit of this, this passage, but, but I want to say this. You know, sometimes, you know, we do get to a point in our life 
and, and I'm going I'm to relate this to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, but sometimes we get to a point in our life, um, you could be in the ministry, um, you could be a pastor, you could be an elder, you could be a deacon, uh, and you're in a leadership position, and that in itself uh, carries with it certain responsibilities that are really joyous at times, and other times it's not. But beyond the ministry, you know, um, how many of us do not struggle with these things? When we're dealing with things in our lives, it may be a troubled or maybe an unfulfilling marriage, or maybe a failing marriage, or maybe a, a struggle with something that we've had all our lives that we've known about. It could be a matter of def, uh, depression or schizophrenia or some form of mental illness. It, it may be, um, you know, uh, pressures that we are facing with our parents. Maybe they're in the process of dying or with our children where they are struggling with a disease or some kind of incapacity or, you know, what, what, whatever we face. There, there are times in our lives, and I, I don't think we, we admit this very often, but there are times where we come to our lives and we just say, you know, is death so bad? And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're suicidal at the moment, although some of us in our quieter moments may admit that. You know, we've, we've come close to thinking about that. Maybe not be suicidal, though, but it could be that we just say, you know what? Sometimes death is preferable to life because the life that I'm living just seems like a constant death anyway. You ever have that? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes, honestly, we need a rebuke to shake us out of it. So you can't, you can't think that way. But other times, most of the time, don't you think, we don't, we don't need a rebuke. Um, we need grace. We need, we just need a, a pick-me-up. We need, we need encouragement. And the encouragement just to, to move on to the next level, just to the next day, the next day, and hopefully more days after that. And I th the reason why I bring that out is because this is human, and this is what we see as we've seen in Moses, and that's what we see in Elijah. And, and, and it's very interesting. God doesn't leave him where he's at, but what God does is he, in a sense, he picks up Elijah and he gives him what he needs. And what does he need? Well, at this moment... It's interesting. It's just a simple form of nourishment. Now, I want to draw your attention to, uh, as we draw down from the story, um, after Elijah says, Lord, just take away my life, he lays down and he sleeps under the broom tree. But the Lord just doesn't leave him there. Behold, the Lord sends an angel, right? And he touches Elijah and he says to him, get up and eat. <laughs> get up and eat. And, uh, and, and, and the, the scripture goes on to say that he, he, uh, uh, he saw a head of cake baked on hot stones at his head and a jar of water, so just bread and water, and he ate and he drank, and then what does he do? He says, oh, now I feel refreshed. No, he's like, I'm going to lay down again. So I want to suggest to you that, that he's given nourishment, but he decides on the basis of his will that, you know what? I, I still don't want to go on. I'm tired. I'm depressed. I'm going to go, I'm going to go under that, that, that broom tree again. So what he, he lays down and he, he falls asleep again. And then what we read is that the angel comes a second time and he touches him probably on his shoulder, something like this. And he says, get up and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And then he went on in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now I'll talk about Horeb in just a second. 
But here's the thing that we need to understand. There are many times, whether it be in the ministry, whether it be in our lives, whether it be as husbands or as fathers or husbands and wives, when we, there's times when we want to cash it in. And, and, and the, Lord, the Lord basically says to us, I know you want to cash it in, but I'm not accepting resignation. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to give you the nourishment that you need so that you can keep going on, at least just to the next level, and I will give you that continual nourishment and sustenance that you need to keep going forward. That's the way our God is. That's how he operates. I find it very interesting. So, so Elijah, he wants to resign from the ministry. He wants to be done with it, but the Lord says, no, no, I, I, don't do this. I have work for you to do yet. And so he nourishes Elijah. What does he do? Elijah moves on 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Now, you know how long that is? How far Horeb is? That's 320 kilometers. <laughs> no wonder it takes him 40 days, 40 nights to get there. But we, we read how in the strength of that food, he goes on 40 days and 40 nights. That's a supernatural dispensation. <laughs> it's not just, oh, here's a little bread and here's a little water, naturally so, and that'll carry you 40 days, 40 nights. No, the Lord combines with that nourishment to bring him to Horeb. Now, one final thing, and then I want to start drawing to a close. Um, Mount Horeb is, is another name for Mount Sinai. Do you know that? So he, he moves 40 days, 40 nights. He goes to, and this is the way the passage ends, he goes to Horeb, Mount Sinai, and when Elijah gets there, the passage doesn't say it, but it, it, it's probably both a place of tragedy and triumph for him. The Sinai, he gets to Sinai, it's a place of tragedy because he remembers that Sinai is the place of the giving of the law and it reminds him just how far the people of God had moved away from the law of God and he's got a lot of work before him to call the people of God back to himself. But it was also a place of great triumph for him for when he got to Sinai, he was reminded that, you know what? He's not alone. As Jesus says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. You may want to cash it in, but I'm going to give you the nourishment to keep moving on. And Elijah was reminded of that at that mount. So I want you to think about this. I, wish, I kind of wish we had the table here so you could kind of see it for yourself. But when, when, the, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and next time try to think about it. Remember the story. When you come forward to the table, you're, you're reminded that, you know what? The Lord Jesus does love me. He gave my life, he gave his life for me. And when I partake of that bread and I partake of that wine, he is, by means of the ministry of his spirit, nourishing me and giving me the strength to move on. Again, that's, that's why the reformers called it a means of grace. A means of grace. Sometimes we, we have, you ever seen this in, in a church where you have the table and then, let's say that's the Lord's table. And then you, you find words right here. What, what do those words say? What? Do this in remembrance of me. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen it. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we saw a table that said, the means of grace? Wouldn't be bad. Now, of course, do this in remembrance of me comes from the Lord. But the truth of the reformers Stands equally there, right? A means of grace, a pick-me-up, nourishing, refreshing of our souls. Let me bring you just to two citations there in regard to one other confessional standard. Do you go to the Belgic Confession? 
Uh, there we go. The Lord's Supper, it says, is a spiritual feast at which Christ communicates all his spiritual benefits to us. It is here where he nourishes, notice those words, strengthens and comforts our poor, comfortless souls, pledging his goodwill and grace to us. And then go to the next one. That's the Lord's Supper form. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with Christ's body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. The Lord feeds us. So, you know, when we look at the story of Elijah and the nourishment he got, what did he get? He just got bread and water. We have something a lot better. We have something from the hand of the Lord himself. It's bread and it's wine. Accompanied by these beautiful words where he says through the psalmist, taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's remember this the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. A couple more sermons coming up on the Lord's Supper in the weeks to come. Let's, uh, let's come to the Lord and let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do provide for us all the time. You're our Heavenly Father, and you bend down, and you condescend to us. And as a, as a mother bird feeds her chicks in the nest, so too, Lord, you bend down, and you feed us from above. You always have done that. You've done that with the, wild, uh, the Israelites in the wilderness, provide, providing manna for them. And you do that for us. Every time we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You supply it. For this, we are very thankful. And Lord, we thank you too for giving us the Lord's Supper, something that we can see and something that we can take hold of and embrace as we move on in this journey of life, knowing that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have provided for us something in Christ Jesus, eternal life, but also the sustenance that we need in this life, in this difficult journey of life to keep moving on to the new creation the new heavens, and the new earth. And, oh, God, we look forward to that day when we cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.